Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. How would you feel moving into a home where a serial killer once lived? In November 2010, Tom and Barbara Holmes moved into their own murder house. The backyard where seven bodies were once buried was transformed by the couple into a cozy retreat with a paving stone deck out in the yard and manicured landscaping. The most notorious home in Sacramento, California was a morbid landmark for residents who'd often walk by looking up at the old house, shaking their heads, exclaiming to one another their thought that it should be torn down. But did they really want it gone, or was it now ingrained in the history and memory of the city and the neighborhood of F Street? To Tom and Barbara, it didn't matter, though. This was their home. The history didn't matter. I don't know if I'd feel the same. People often get nostalgic for excitement long since past, even if that excitement was terrible and tragic. They speak about it. They whisper and gossip about it. It's the barometer to which they can compare their own misdeeds, make them seem lesser than. The house that Tom and Barbara now called home on F Street had been the site of at least seven murders, and possibly as many as 15. Sacramento, California in the 80s was the largest city in the Central Valley of California. Although the people living there would have told you it still had that small town feel, where people still cared for one another, and everyone knew someone who knew someone, if you know what I mean. Neighborhoods were growing. People were moving there for opportunity. There was constant construction as the city was forced to grow with its population. And like any city, people came and went, but it was always likable and charming. But there were also growing problems, One that only a few decades previous would have seemed unlikely and alien to the citizens of Sacramento. Crime, as well as a constant influx of homeless people. Of course, the weather was mild, the people were tolerant and generally more relaxed about the disenfranchised members of society living on the streets. And California's social programs were generous compared to the rest of the country. Some members of the Sacramento community weren't tolerant, bordering on apathetic, though. Instead, they wanted to help. A 51-year-old homeless schizophrenic man, plagued by voices only he could hear, named Alberto Montoya, was one of those homeless people living on the streets of Sacramento in the 80s. That is until a social worker with an outreach program called Volunteers of America took a special interest in him and begun seeking out housing for the mentally ill man who was no longer able to work or function properly in society. Albert Montoya and the kind social worker drove a distance not far but miles removed from the transient world Alberto had been living in to a cozy-looking home sitting on a residential street in downtown Sacramento. 
The neighborhood had seen better days, though. The lawns weren't routinely maintained. The sidings on some houses showed their age, and paint flaked from the banisters of porches. But the house they had arrived at was an old Victorian home, painted blue with white trim. The yard was landscaped and well-kept. This home stood apart from the neighborhood like a hand-stitched quilt in a pile of half-used dish rags. The address was 1426 F Street, and the house was a boarding home, one that the social workers in Sacramento relied on to house their harder-to-manage clients, and Alberto in his schizophrenic episode certainly fit that bill. As pleasant-seeming as this boarding house was, the elderly landlady was even more pleasant, with her calm blue eyes, white hair, and calm demeanor. Her name was Dorothea Puentes, and as far as social workers were concerned, Dorothea was a bit of a neighborhood saint. According to what she told them, she was in her 70s and had been a nurse during World War II, which was certainly impressive. Saintly Dorothea Puentes didn't only board hard-to-manage homeless and vulnerable members of society, she was also known to constantly donate money and clothes to various charities, and she also hired parolees fresh out of jail to do her yard work and general maintenance around the house. In the eyes of social workers, her boarding house was special. It was different. She had open arms extended wide for anyone and took a grandmother-like maternal and caring interest in the lives of her tenants. Alcoholics, drug addicts, reform criminals, the mentally ill. It didn't matter what had brought them to her door, only that they were there now. Most of Dorothea's clients were also elderly with extensive rap sheets of health problems and most received several social benefits. Dorothea knew how those social benefits worked. She knew them inside and out. If a tenant was receiving a disability check, Dorothea would know how to get them more. If a tenant was receiving EI insurance, Dorothea would find some way to increase that income as well. She was more than willing to help. On February 3rd, 1988, Alberto Montoya walked through the front door and was welcomed into Dorothea's boarding home. At the time Alberto moved in, another boarder was also living in the house, 62-year-old Vera Faye Martin. But on February 5th, only two days after Alberto moved in, Vera moved out. But that isn't suspicious at all. It was a boarding house after all, and by nature the stay of tenants was temporary. Tenants were constantly moving in and out of the home while they either got their lives back on track or moved on to a different boarding home. Alberto and the other boarders who were living in Dorothea's home at the time lived on the main floor, each in their own individual rooms. As Alberto moved in, he began to meet his neighbors, including Benjamin Fink, who had made a career of getting lost at the bottom of a bottle. Benjamin was a constant fixture in the ER rooms of Sacramento, well known by ER doctors. He often appeared in the ER room on a gurney with shockingly dangerous levels of alcohol in his system. Due to his alcohol addiction, Benjamin Fink would receive a benefits check and promptly use this newfound wealth to pickle himself in liquor. After one of his many binges, though, Benjamin Fink also disappeared from the boarding home. But no one, including a social worker, was entirely surprised. Unlike Vera and Benjamin, though, Alberto thrived under Dorothea's roof 
He started to become more well-groomed, getting regular haircuts, his hygiene improved, and he started to wear stylish new clothing. It seemed the care he was receiving from Dorothea, the saint of F Street, was helping Alberto, allowing him to grow and take more care of himself. All throughout that summer, Alberto continued to grow, continued to thrive, and to social workers it seemed like perhaps Alberto was going to beat the odds. Perhaps he was one of the lucky few who would be able to rejoin society and continue thriving after Dorothea's boarding home. But in November of 1988, police received a call from a woman looking to file a missing persons report. The caller was Judy Moyes, Alberto's social worker. And the missing person was Alberto. Judy Moyes had been having troubles getting into contact with Alberto and had reached out to Dorothea. But when she asked where Alberto was, Dorothea responded he was on vacation. Apparently, the developmentally challenged and schizophrenic Alberto had taken a trip to Mexico with some of the other tenants. Don't worry, she said. He'll be back in a few days. But weeks passed, and Alberto still hadn't returned. By November 7th, Alberto had already been missing for several weeks, and police began an investigation into his whereabouts. Judy was worried. Alberto, who seemed to have finally found some level of comfort and peace in his life, had gone missing, and she was determined to resolve the matter and set her worried mind at ease. Around that time, while at work, and actively looking for Alberto, the phone rang. Judy answered the phone, and a man fumbling over his own name, at first calling himself Anthony and then Michel Obregon, told her that he was Alberto's uncle, that she shouldn't worry, that Alberto was with him, safely in Treeport, Utah. Now, first Alberto had been in Mexico, now he was in Utah. When Dorothea had explicitly told her that Alberto would be home within a few days back to Sacramento, but now he was in Utah? Something wasn't right. Judy hung up the phone and quickly picked it back up off the receiver, dialing the number of the boarding house. When asked, Dorothea told Judy that the story was true, that Alberto was now with his uncle in Utah. Dorothea did her best to assure Judy that he was fine. Allegedly, while she had been at Sunday Mass, a close relative of his had come by to pack up Alberto and his belongings to take him to his uncle's in Utah, and had left a note explaining this. Judy played along, but then she hung up the phone, and once again quickly picked it right back up, hearing the dial tone blaring in her ear as she dialed police to urge them to visit the boarding home. Investigators promptly arrived at Dorothea's home, where they were welcomed into the home. Investigators had been told by Judy to speak with a man living in the house named John Sharp. Unlike the other tenants, John wasn't suffering from a mental illness, nor was he infirm or an alcoholic. Judy assured police that if they were going to get the right information, it would be from him. Police were shown around the home. Their host, the landlady of the F Street boarding house, was accommodating and cooperative. 
but police were more interested in what John Sharp had to say about the matter. But when questioned, John Sharp confirmed that Alberto had left with a relative. And that was it. Investigators were satisfied that Dorothea was telling the truth. They thanked their host and walked through the front door. But as they were leaving, John Sharp passed one of the officers a note requesting to meet at a separate location later. Later that day, an investigator met with John Sharp, away from the watchful eye of the other tenants and Dorothea. John told police that Dorothea had asked the tenants to lie. Apparently, the saint of F Street wasn't all she appeared to be. But John wasn't done yet. He continued telling officers he heard something being dragged down the stairs on the day that Vera had moved out and described a peculiar odor coming from the upstairs of the home around the time Benjamin went missing. This was certainly enough to spark their interest. Perhaps Dorothea was deceiving them. This elderly woman who seemed so gentle and kind wasn't what she professed to be, and it didn't take police long to find out just how wrong they had been about her. It turned out that Dorothea was on parole for forgery, in 1981 and 1982, on four separate occasions, Dorothea had posed as a nurse, drugged her victims, and stolen their blank checks, jewelry, and other valuables. But that wasn't all she had done. She had also forged social security checks. And according to her police record, she wasn't actually 70 years old, as she had been telling social workers. Instead, she was only 59 years old. And she'd never been a nurse. On Friday, November 11, 1988, investigators made their way to the F Street boarding home to question Dorothea. When they arrived, she wasn't mad. She wasn't put out of place. She made eye contact and spoke frankly. There wasn't a moment of doubt or fear in her eyes. She welcomed investigators once more into her home and allowed them to search the entire house. There was nothing to hide. Nothing except two prescription bottles with the name Dorothy Miller on them. When asked who Dorothy Miller was, investigators were told she was a relative. As the preliminary investigation was coming to a close, though, police asked Dorothea if they could dig in her yard. After all, one of her tenants had told them that he thought it was possible there would be bodies buried back there. Dorothea was more than happy to oblige and even went to fetch them another shovel to assist in the digging. Investigators started plunging their shovels into the earth, hoping to reveal some sort of truth, whether that was a body or Dorothea's innocence. But a short while into the dig, investigators came across the root of a tree. One of the investigators jumped in the hole, digging his fingertips into the earth, trying to dislodge the root. He gave it a firm tug and then pulled harder but it just wouldn't budge. Giving one last full-body effort, the root came free with a pop, but instead of being a tree root, what the investigator held in his hands was a human femur bone. Dorothea looked on, shock in her eyes, and gasped as the human remains were unearthed. Police looked at her and she looked at them with genuine surprise and nervous anxiety. 
She allegedly had no idea what this was. And what this was was certainly more than police had expected to find. So they packed up for the day and called in CSI to formally dig up the yard the following day. And on the next day, CSI did arrive. The yard was taped off and a large tarp protected the yard from the rain that fell unrelenting on the residents who had gathered to see the sideshow and the media with their reporters and news cameras all interested in what police were uncovering. Investigators weren't ready to consider her a suspect yet. So as they arrived to dig and started plunging the shovels back into the earth, Dorothea asked if she could go grab a coffee with a nearby relative, and police allowed her to. While she was grabbing coffee, well, while investigators thought she was out grabbing a coffee, police dug up the entirety of the yard. The body they had found would later be identified as 78-year-old Leona Carpenter. If there was one body, perhaps the yard was hiding more. It wasn't long until they found another corpse hidden underneath the soil of Dorothea's yard. And another. And another. Until they had found seven corpses in total. Now, creep. Digging up a yard is no small task. It's long and tiring work. And if you remember, Dorothea had left to grab coffee some hours ago. Well, surprise, she hadn't been grabbing coffee at all. Instead, she was fleeing because she knew what investigators would find. Police realized they had made a terrible mistake allowing this gentle-looking elderly woman leave while they started their dig. The grandma hunt was now on. As investigators quickly tried to remedy their mistake by bringing Dorothea into custody for questioning, Dorothea had fled to Los Angeles, a six-hour drive away from Sacramento, and in comparison to the smaller city, Los Angeles was a sprawling metropolis that she could easily be lost in. Lost to police. A day passed, then two, then three days, and then four days, and police still hadn't found Dorothea. But on the fifth day, police received a report from an elderly man. While in L.A., Dorothea had been quick to find friends, including an elderly gentleman she had met in a bar. Unfortunately for Dorothea, though, the man had recognized her from a news report on TV. Police were quick to apprehend Dorothea, not willing to make the same mistake twice by letting her escape. Investigators arrived, arresting Dorothea, and charged her with a total of nine murders before flying her back to Sacramento. And then... It took five years for Dorothea to go to trial, mostly due to extensive legal battles meant to hold up the trial. But once she was on trial, all eyes were on her. Her defense described her as a sweet grandmother who, while perhaps a thief, was certainly not capable of murder with her endearing white curled hair and thick glasses. On the other hand, the prosecution was certain that Dorothea was anything but a sweet old grandmother and characterized as a manipulative monster taking advantage of some of the most vulnerable members of society. Over 130 witnesses were brought to the stand. And while the state said Dorothea had drugged her victims using sleeping bills she'd been prescribed by a psychotherapist to kill them, Pathologists testified that they were unable to say with any certainty how any of the victims had died. 
But Dalamane, a drug used to treat insomnia, was found in all seven bodies. The theory was, the convicts on parole she had so kindly hired to work in her yard were actually hired to bury the bodies of her victims. As far as prosecutors were concerned, Dorothea was one of the most callous, calculating, manipulative serial killers in the history of the United States. She had cashed in at least 60 social security checks of former tenants long after they were deceased. She had intentionally opened her home to elderly members of society, those who have been perhaps forgotten, and used them as her own little piggy bank. It's hard to believe there was any doubt about her guilt, but thanks to her grandmotherly demeanor, it took several days of a deliberating and deadlocked jury to come back with a verdict. In 1993, Dorothea Puentes was finally convicted of three murders and was sentenced to two back-to-back life sentences. So what do you think, Creep? Seven bodies found in her backyard, convicted of three, and possibly as many as 15 victims. How far did this monster's crimes go? Are there other Albertos we don't know about? Other members of society that have fallen through the cracks due to mental illness or otherwise forgotten. How about Dorothea's friend, Ruth Monroe, who had rented a space in an apartment she had in April of 1982? Ruth Monroe was Dorothea's friend and business partner at the time, and shortly after died from an overdose of codeine and Tylenol. When questioned, Dorothea said Monroe was depressed. And so, police officially ruled it a suicide. Or what about 74-year-old Malcolm McKenzie, who made accusations that Dorothea drugged him and stole his pension, of which she was eventually convicted to five years in jail for? Or how about 77-year-old Everson Gilmouth, who Dorothea had become pen pals with while in prison, and upon her release had ended up opening a joint bank account with Everson, perhaps starting a relationship? Later that year, though, Dorothea hired a handyman who she'd given Everson's 1980 Ford pickup truck to. But that wasn't before she employed this handyman to build a coffin-like box, which she stated was for books. But then this same handyman drove her to a riverbank and helped her throw this same box of supposed books into the river. On January 1st, 1986, the box was recovered by a fisherman, who found the rotting remains of a man who would not be identified as Everson until three years later. All the while, Dorothea Puentes collected his pension checks and forged loving letters to his family. We only know what's been discovered, creeps. How many more of Dorothea's victims are we unaware of? And how many more predators like her are there out there, working in the shadows, preying on the vulnerable and forgotten? So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. 
You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door. (laughs) 